All right. We can start. Okay. Good evening to the Facebook. Thank you, all of you who have signed up for this webinar, for all the people that are here, or all of the one person that's here. Um, This is. What? Okay. Well, anyway, this is our live version of Sound Notes. Mike Kottmeyer is here. We're going to try to answer some questions. Mike, how are you tonight? Awesome, Dave. How you doing, man? I'm good. And I'm Dave Pryor. So uh, we're going to try to deal with some questions that folks have sent in, and we're going to see where that goes. Mike, what's going on with you? Like, what's the top of mind for you tonight? What's top of mind for me? Well, you know, it's like I've got have an interesting week. I'm actually at home all week, as you guys can tell. Um, from uh, the Armada of guitars. <laughs> yeah. I got, what did we count last time? 30 of them? Something like that. Yes. I have a bit of a bit of a problem um, collecting guitars, so it's kind of my thing. Um <laughs> No, so so it's good, right? So we're doing a lot of stuff. You know, whenever I get a chance to be home, you know, I'm doing a lot of stuff with, with the company. Last week we were, I was down at um, University of Florida where I do the entrepreneur and residence stuff, volunteering. And you know, this is probably not the topic of conversation tonight, but one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about is um, I work with the Industrial and Systems Engineering College down there. And what's kind of cool is that we're exploring the intersection between industrial and systems engineering, the computer science department, and how it relates to organizational design. Okay. And I have kind of a hypothesis that is <clears throat> that the the discipline and skills that industrial engineers bring to manufacturing, that's really what the core thing that we do at Leading Agile and what the core thing I think the software industry needs, right? It's really an industrial and systems engineering problem more than it is a technology problem or a project management problem. And so Leading Agile is sponsoring a little bit of research down there to see if we can come up with some sort of position paper or some sort of introductory research into that topic. So can you explain how, like, what, what are the key differences there? If- well, so if you think about it, if you think about it, right? So when, when you engage with, with that college, right? I'm, I'm actually a computer science guy by education. But when you engage with that college, what they're what they're really teaching people how to do is to, you know, understand value streams, to optimize processes, to focus on flow. You know, a lot of the things that we're doing at the program and portfolio level, a lot of things that an agile PMO would do. Okay. It's really kind of a systems engineering optimization process at the end of the day. But one of the things that we talk a lot about is there's there's really kind of three things when it comes to industrial and systems engineering and um, agile we have to think about because, you know, industrial systems engineers write code to develop um, algorithms to optimize their, their, their work, even in manufacturing. And so when we talk about this, one of the first things that um, we usually, we usually hear about is the idea of using agile in that context to write software. And that's, that's actually a valid need, but that's no different than any other software software. And then there's the idea of using industrial and systems engineering techniques to optimize process flows within uh, healthy organizations. Okay. There's what what I think about is the idea of, you know, imagine you walked into a manufacturing facility that was just totally, wholly sub-optimized. Okay. And and you're walking in and you're rebuilding the assembly line to even create some semblance of flow. That's okay. a little bit of what we're doing in, in transformation. And one of the things I was making the point to the systems engineers, the, the students last last week, was that, you know, software engineering is a manufacturing process of sorts. The the analogy holds. But what's what's hard about it, what's difficult is that all we see are people typing at computers and cube farms. Right. You know, maybe whiteboards and things like that. You walk into an automotive manufacturing plant and you can see a physical product moving through a physical assembly line. With okay. software, you can't see the the product, right? It's all it's all code, right? But that assembly line is there. It's just virtual. So does it? It seems weird to me that manufacturing is looking to agile, since everything we do in agile is based on stuff that happened in manufacturing. Well, I don't know that they're necessarily if, if they're that they're necessarily looking to agile. What I'm doing is I'm. I'm basically, you know, again, right. I think we're really totally derailed off of you know, some of the questions that we, we were going to ask. Well, no, I'm, I'm yeah. working my thing. It's coming around, that. man. Let it go. So, so the, the, the application of that academic discipline. Okay. To software organizations. Okay. So it's not so much that manufacturing people are interested in agile. Um, it's more that like, I believe that agile, the fundamental science and academia underneath our, our topic yeah. is, an industrial engineering topic. Like when you go in and like you, if you talk about the kinds of things that we do, right. Talk about, I mean, you even start using the same words, 
um, yeah. and where the words are different, they map really easily. So again, right, so, but because the industrial and systems engineering department is mostly focused on manufacturing and, um, you know, physical processes, sure. there's, there's not an immediate jump to how do we apply this to software engineering. And we did, okay. a, we had an intern last summer that did some preliminary research and we couldn't find anything in academia that addressed it. So, ah, okay. Like that. Yeah. All right. So you ready for me to wind it back around? Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's do okay. it. Okay. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned an agile PMO and we had, a, I had a bunch of questions from students in class today about PMO. So I did that on purpose too. I it like was, it. I know it was a nice little biscuit you laid there in the trail. Um, so how would you define an agile PMO and how is that different from a traditional PMO for, for folks? Because there's all these PMOs that are like a dead man walking now and they're trying to figure out what the hell they're supposed to do. Yeah. How is an agile PMO different? Well, so the first, the first question that I have to ask, and I apologize, my, my seat is, is caught. I have to, have to fix. I'm like too OCD to leave it there. Um, apologize. Sorry. Sorry, everybody on the phone. Um, sorry, MySpace. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, so the, the, the first thing you have to ask yourself, is the PMO a governance PMO okay. or is it a project management PMO? Because you see it both ways. You see a light, a lighter weight PMO that's responsible for documentation and process definition and sure. parents and kind of like a compliance or governance kind of role. Okay. You also see PMOs that are full of project managers and they're actually big, robust organizations that actually go out and do delivery. Okay. okay. And so, so then, so when you say, how does an agile PMO work? Um, you know, I mean, again, it's like one of the things you and I talked about as we were getting into some of these questions is that so often you have to go back to first principles to fundamentally answer it. But right. I can try to give you a, a simple answer. Like to me, what an agile PMO does is it manages the flow of value across okay. multiple agile teams. Right, especially if it's a governance perspective. So, so if you think about, and I'll just I'll just anchor on safe because probably most people have some idea of, of what's involved with Scout Agile Framework. If you really think about what's going on at the program and portfolio levels, right, right those are more lean value stream based processes. Yeah. So people are getting together on some sort of regular cadence. They're moving work into a ready state. They're they're batching it up. They're putting it into delivery. They're inspecting, making sure it's the right thing. They're deploying, right? All that kind of stuff. That's a value stream that rides across multiple teams. Okay. So an Agile PMO, what I would suggest is that they are responsible for governing the flow of value across multiple Agile teams. So in okay. a very practical sense, right, they might participate in a cross-functional team of, you know, maybe product people, architects. They might be facilitating some decomposition work. They might um, be working with the product owners to make sure that work is sequenced across the teams the right way. Okay. They're assessing the performance of those teams for, you know, are they bottlenecked? Are, you know, are the deliverables all kind of rolling up? They're helping them with efficiency, basically. Yeah, it, it becomes, it, they become kind of the, um, the stewards of all of the processes that run outside of a single agile team. Okay. Right? Because if you look at our model stuff, we have a really explicit recommendation for a program level governance flow, yeah. right? Based on Kanban kind of roughly goes like analysis, design, build, test, deploy, because that's kind of where that happens, right? That that flow, yeah. that decomposition happens across um, the teams and it can be modeled in a Kanban. Um, the, the steps and the handoffs if necessary can, um, can be orchestrated and okay. then uh, the program level, there's often a flow that goes from ideation all the way to delivery and value realization, right? Okay. That can be mapped out. Oftentimes, there's there's deliverables and things like that that have to happen for those work items to flow across the portfolio level. Yeah. So, like a pure play like PMO, where it's really focused on governance and process adherence and things like that, would have a similar kind of role, but it would okay. be. Exclusively at like the program and portfolio level, making sure that work is flowing through the system, that we're understanding where bottlenecks are, and we're optimizing to your point, kind of the metrics around work flowing through the system. Okay. Right. So can I ask, ask a question about this? Yeah. Because yeah. I've had this kind of theory that for PMOs, one of the things, one of the roles they can play in an organization that's transforming is they're like a shock absorber, a cultural shock absorber. So they're figuring out where the pain points are in the organization. When you introduce agile, they're helping management cope with the change 
to their value system and how they look at work. They're helping the teams cope with that change. Is there room in what you described, which, which is sort of very analytical of the flow to be kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, like the company's therapist for agile transformation, because the, the change carries a burden, a cognitive burden for the people, a cultural burden for the company, and somebody's got to help them cope with that. And that's one of the things I would think a PMO could add a lot of value in if they took on that mission. But that sounds like it doesn't necessarily sync up with what you're talking about. So, right. So remember, right, how we think about things, there's three aspects of transformation. There's kind of the structural aspect of transformation, which is around how are we going to form teams? How are we going to create PMOs? How are we going to create governance bodies? Things right. like that, right? How is the work of the system going to, going to operate? What is the alignment of, the, the, of value creation? And then there's the processes that we use to enable that value creation, right? So at the team level, it's Scrum. Um, at the program and portfolio level, it's more often than not Kanban, right? There's metrics and tooling strategies at, at those levels, right? Things like that, right? So that's structural process focused. Yeah. And then kind of the third leg of it is, is cultural and behavioral, yeah. right? That kind of a thing. Um, so, you know, I don't know, man. It's like, do you it's think like, that that's necessary? Do you think that there, or I mean, maybe it's like an organizational change PMO or a transformation PMO. Is that function needed? Well, you know, so so what you you, you basically described to me is 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 somebody playing a coaching role? Is somebody playing a support role in yeah. the organization? Right. Yes. Yes. And so so if we translate your question into does an agile PMO provide a coaching role? a support role for the organization to help steward change. Yeah. Um, you know, again, right. That's, that's just the decision that you make. So I mean, a lot of times we come in as an external entity and we're providing the change agent and the coaching role to help the organization instantiate multi-tier governance, right. A team-based organizational structure to get the flow of value through. So okay. in, a, in a steady operational state, I would suggest that the PMO owns um, how the program and portfolio layers are governed, governed and how the flow of value goes through there. Okay. And then at a, at a team level execution, making sure that the teams have everything, they're working with scrum masters and product owners to make sure that those teams um, have everything that they need in order to stabilize velocity. Okay. I think the, the PMO is probably also interfacing with other parts of the organization that need analytics or data or what have you, or maybe there's coordination with the the delivery of the product organization to like maybe marketing or sales or something like that. Right. Yeah. So that's like the, to me, that's the core piece. So if the organization is also um, the PMO is also responsible, has a coaching or a change agent, yeah. uh, that's probably different than maybe the management of the flow of value across the enterprise. Okay. That's, that's how, that's how I think about it. Right. And, and so I, I don't think it's uncommon for a PMO to have a coaching function part of it. Right. But it, I just think it would require just a lot of intentionality. Right. Cause if you're yeah. doing those kinds of things. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, my point of view, right. So I don't know how Kathy, Greg and Jen feel about this, how much they've been, you know, kind of paying attention to our overall uh, body of work. But, you know, one of the things I think is a challenge, and this is the reason why it's hard to answer PMO questions without some time to really unpack it, yeah. is if you take a functionally siloed organization, you know, or, a, you know, an organization that is not aligned around products or value or capability or something like that, um, then, then the PMO question becomes, it becomes difficult, right? Because... Yeah. Um, a healthy agile PMO operates within an agile ecosystem and an agile context. Yeah. Um, it's a whole different question to say, I have a broken organization that's not aligned, that is trying to figure out how to do agile. What's the role of the PMO in that? Well, yeah. So there's all this focus on organizational change now, and that's yeah. becoming like it's a thing. And I keep wondering if there needs to be part of a company that's monitoring how they're coping with change, the pace of change. In the same way you, you manage flow through the system, you manage change through the organization. So, so we're working on, on two engagements right now that I would consider Uber engagements, right? Large, multi, multi-thousands of people transformations. And in, and in both cases, we've instantiated an entity called a transformation office. Okay. And the transformation office is responsible for 
facilitating organizational design, facilitating alignment around governance and metrics, um, facilitating alignment around transformation strategy. Okay. Like that, right? And then in that kind of an organization, and pay attention, I'm sure you probably see it, but Jessica's texting us a question here if, it, if it's relevant. Um, <laughs> I'm it, paying attention. Okay, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> everybody we're, we're damn dude yeah. so so but the challenge but the challenge becomes is that in those organizations that are doing explicit transformation work right i think it's smart to separate the transformation office from the pmo right complementary to inform each other yeah but the transformation office is separate in a steady state organization right one that's been transformed you know you can talk about the idealized way that in a multi-tier um, agile implementation with execution at the team level, program, portfolio level, mm -hmm. full value-based and Kanban, right? Then you can talk about the, the PMO's role in facilitating that flow of value, removing impediments, sure. entities, right? Things like that. Okay. Um, where it gets complicated and where I, but, but this is where I think the questions come from is I'm in a traditional PMO. Yeah with an organization that's trying to do agile but probably not really doing it incredibly well what's my new job in that yeah right and, and, and one of the follow-up questions to that was is there a role for a project manager of some kind in that organization? yeah I, I think i think absolutely in a in a well-formed agile enterprise that um the what i used to say about this all the time back when i was really exploring this in depth is that is that scrum didn't do away with project management per se but it did do away with project managers, right? No, it did, right? I know. I actually wrote a blog post. This has to have been seven, eight, nine years ago now. It's like I mean, kind of like what happened to the project manager. And if you really look at the role of the product owner, the scrum master and the team, uh, I would suggest that the lion's share of the project manager's core function went to um, the product owner. Yeah. Um, some of the facilitation and softer stuff um, meetings, process, symmetric stuff went scrum master, but a lot of the decisions about what to do and how to do the work and how to break things down went to the team. Right. So, you know, a lot of times we think, okay, because it says product owner in it, we're going to give the role to a project manager or a VA. And, you know, again, right in the early days when I was exploring this, um, I was working for a company called check free and they had these, this role, it was like an implementation project manager. And what this project manager would do is they would interface with the external customers to establish the requirements and then they would work with the team to put together a plan and this is all waterfall right so it's gantt charts and things like that yes. um, to actually execute the work right and then they would manage the team to do the work and i thought i was thinking right you go okay well that's kind of like the role of a product owner right you go out to the market figure out what the market needs and then and then break things down into user stories and make sequencing decisions about how to feed it to the team sure and so in my head, you know, to, as I was parsing all this stuff in my early days, um, I was like, I think the product owner actually has a large part of the project manager's job. Mm -hmm. What the product owner doesn't have is either the scrum master or the team has. So now you get into these large multi-team, multi-program, multi-portfolio kinds of environments. And what I would suggest is that <clears throat> at the lowest level, that rule still holds. That the, that the teams are largely going to operate within their container. They're going to be self-organized and self-managed within that container. They're okay. going to receive backlog for the product owner. They're going to produce working tested software at the end of the sprint. They're going to establish stable velocity. And within that set of constraints, they get to operate kind of however they want, right? Okay. They, get to, they get to self-organize the work within that container. And so, and so in that context, right, a healthy performing scrum team, <clears throat> then I don't need a project manager at the team level. Right. I, what I tend to need a project manager is, is, is in the coordination of the flow of value across, right? Okay. So our product owner team model, we would take a project manager, a product person, and like an architect, and maybe a QA analyst or another kind of analyst. And then they would be responsible for, you know, collectively for decomposition and managing the flow of work across teams. Okay. The project manager would perform a unique role in understanding the metrics at the execution level, understanding what's necessary to maintain value flowing at the program level, and then interfacing with the rest of the organization to get it what it needs and to get the program what it needs. Right. Okay. So that project manager, I think, takes a step up 
and does the stuff that's what's really meaningful. Okay. okay. But everything I just said is predicated upon having well-formed teams that can stabilize velocity. Okay. Here's the anti-pattern that- well, yeah, And I got to follow up when you're done with your well, anti-pattern. Yeah, so the, here's the anti-pattern that creates the cognitive dissonance. If the team does not have stable velocity against a known backlog, then what happens is that team's not predictable, right? It can't right. make commitments. And now because it can't make any commitments and it's got dependencies on five or six other teams, right? The tendency <coughs> is for the project manager that's supposed to be living in the layer above, right? To go down and say, well, okay, right? You don't have stable velocity. You can't make any commitments. How many hours are you going to work? What tasks are you going to work on? What's going to be in your Gantt chart, right? And they yeah. start managing it, right? Yeah. Well, so how the team, I'm going to say this in a provocative way, how the team protects themselves from the project manager is that they, they operate as a self-contained unit and establish stable velocity against the known backlog. And they can start to articulate three, six, sometimes eight sprints out where they think they're going to be. Okay. Give that project manager a baseline. Like my early experience and this- This is like total heresy, weaving the PM speak into your agile here. Well, well, well it's because I grew up in, in project management, right? And so, and there's a trade-off. It's like, if the teams wanna be self-managed on some agreed upon planning horizon, they have to be able to make and meet commitments. Okay. And one of the things I do in my three things talk is I talk about like the holy grail of agile isn't, scrum masters and product owners and teams and burn down charts and daily standups and all this stuff, right? right? It's, do I have a well-formed team, a complete team, six to eight people that can deliver a unit yeah. off of a backlog that is developed by a product owner or somebody, right? And if I know the size of my backlog and I know the velocity of the team, I can start to anticipate how long it's going to take me to get through any body of work. Yeah. And what I tell people all the time, and there's a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance here because we've heard the messages in the Agile community for so long that the team's just going to show up, just do the best they can and, and whatever. Well, even in the best of circumstances, right, you're playing with somebody else's money, right? The organ it's like you've got to have some mechanism for yeah. being able to make commitments on some planning horizon. Okay. And if I don't know the size of my backlog and I don't know the, the throughput of the team, the velocity of the team, and I can't get to the definition of done at the end of a sprint, then what I would suggest is that you're, you're done is indeterminate, right? You have no idea how far you're going to get from the backlog through the right. backlog. And if that's okay in your domain, okay, fine. But if your domain is such that you've got to get these eight teams to all land in the same place at the same time, then that's going to be insufficient, right? Yeah. And that pressure from the top, the project management MO is going to be like, look, we're on the hook for delivering this stuff. You agile teams down here who can't stabilize your velocity, you don't know the size of your backlog, you can't get to a definition of done, you guys are now an unreliable partner for us and we can't make commitments on your behalf. Okay. And so what that does is that those people are on the hook, so they put pressure down and they begin to break the rules of Scrum. And so in the early days, when, when I was going in and doing a lot of hands-on coaching rather than organization building that I'm doing now, I would go to the teams and I'd say, look, you guys have to stabilize velocity. And they go, we're never going to be able to follow these rules because the organization is going to just interrupt us like crazy, right? We're never going to be able to operate off of a known backlog. Right. And I say, Here's the deal, right? Here's the trade-off. If you can stabilize velocity, right, then we have to go to the rest of the organization and we have to rationalize the demand patterns, right? So what the organization- do you mean by demand, What do you mean by demand patterns? Yeah, so demand is basically backlog or in a, in a, in a more complex, the kind of the relationship between user stories, features and ethics, right? The flow of work, right? Because what teams are experiencing is that they're getting demand from lots of different channels, multiple products, multiple mm -hmm. projects, they're interrupt driven. They're dealing with the executives interrupting them. They've got their big projects and programs they're trying to deliver. The way Agile works, right, is a complete cross-functional team operating off of a stable backlog and known backlog yeah. that produce a working test increment to a to a, a to a, an acceptance criteria at the end of the okay. sprint, right? And then they get at least two weeks, or back in the day, four weeks to work uninterrupted. Okay. Well, well, the, the demand engine, right? The program portfolio, all the work intake systems are violating that principle. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, and I think to some degree, um, Scrum was so emphatic about the single ringable neck 
because what, what the way I look at the product owner, it was set up as like a buffer, like an interface to the team. Like yeah, you can't translation talk. layer. Between you, the you leave the team alone, the product owner will take the heat. They'll rationalize the demand patterns, yeah. right? The team gets a clean backlog. Okay. okay. But again, if you don't understand how that pattern is supposed to work, right, that all starts to break down. So, and then you get, I, yeah, please. All right. So, I was at a conference a few weeks ago in Memphis and it was digital PM. So, it's all yeah. about digital agencies, web design shops, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they're all client driven and the clients used to just snap on their fingers and they just jump. Yeah. And their business model is set up so that the only way they can maintain the funding coming in is if everybody's on like 17 projects and they're all on seven different teams. And they just switch from one thing to another. And I, I am, was arg- di- advocating, let me say it that way, advocating for yeah. just at least get a stable team, get a stable cross-functional team that can deliver something. Yeah. If that's the best you can do, like, cause they're all worried about trying to do agile and I don't know why they're trying to do agile, but if you can at least get a stable team, if the whole rest of the organization is not fit for agile yet or not structured in such a way, you're talking about organizational design. Is that enough to get started? I mean, does it matter if they're agile? So, so I would suspect given, given your background, your biases, what you do for a living that we might be equating agile to scrum. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually not advocating for, I'm advocating for not scrum for these. So let's, let's assume the questioner is because okay. I think, they all think they're supposed to do scrum. Right? Yeah. So if you show up for a daily stand-up meeting, if you do a regular cadence of plan, mm-hmm. if you deliver something at the end of a sprint, um, you could do, I think this would be a perfect case where you could do perfect scrum, but yeah. fail to actually deliver agility. Absolutely. So, so, so there's a couple of issues that are underneath. We deal with this on, in our marketing team, right, as well. So... The, the idea of a scrum team is that they're, they're basically a self-organizing team of specializing generalists, T-shaped, mm-hmm. right? They do one thing great. They do lots of things kind of well. Um, what, what you find in marketing groups is that I think the skill sets are way, way more specialized. Yeah. So like a copywriter is not necessarily going to be the least bit competent at doing web design. Yeah. And, and the web designers and the copywriters might not be, not be worth anything if they're doing SEO. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're probably not graphic artists at all, right? But you need all of those elements to come together mm-hmm. in order to be able to produce something of value for that client. Okay. Yep. So, so, so the, the, the layering of this problem is, is, is really interesting, right? So just applying Scrum to that, I don't, I don't think is largely going to work, right? Okay. Um, so there's probably some organizational design, right? There's probably some elements that you could make a cross-functional team. And I'm actually literally meeting with Tim Zach, our marketing guy, to talk about scaling our marketing department tomorrow. And that is, is going to be the focus of the conversation, like, what units could we make that would operate like pods and be cross-functional teams and operate together? Yeah. And which things would be like services to those teams, right? Might make sense to have a team of like a graphic designer, a copywriter, and a strategist. Yeah. At our level of scale, right? We're relatively small from a marketing department. I might centralize web design, videography, and um, I don't know, SEO. Okay. Like that, right? And then what I would do is I would have like a, a primary delivery team responsible for that client's backlog mm-hmm. that is that is operating as a team <clears throat> and then as necessary injecting work into the Kanban of the videography okay. team, the 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 graphic design team, that graphic design, you know, the web design team, yeah. and the SEO team, right? Something like that. But then those teams would have to be operating because they're taking they're taking work from multiple stakeholders. Yeah. Right? So they would have to be able to, to be able to communicate back to their teams um, where their work request is at in the queue. They would have to understand class of service and what was urgent, what wasn't. They'd have to have metrics about when that work item is expected to be done. Right. right? So that team could count on that deliverable, you know, assuming prioritization holds, that team could count on that deliverable when it was ready. Okay. So even in that kind of a system, there, there is an aspect of system design. There's probably parts of it that are fine for cross-functional. They can do Scrum. Yeah. But then the relationship between that and the specialist teams, right? Those interactions have to be governed. Okay. The second piece of your problem that, that makes this complicated is that the demand patterns on- Like it wasn't complicated already. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> this, this, deal with 
though in these things these are not like simple answers yeah right so then the other side of the problem you have is that even that client team is probably not working with a single client right okay they're dealing with they're dealing with multiple input channels yeah right and and here's the reality is that is that all of those organizations are are more than likely overcommitted because yeah, they, they have to be they say yes to all the work right they have to yeah services organization right so you have an, you have too much work in the pipe right you've got you got 10 pounds going through a 5 pound bag jammed right? up yeah right it's like so, south carolina in the flood right so now. so the reality is right so the fact that we're overcommitted destabilizes our ability to make any commitments yeah more to do than the team can actually do. And because the team is thrashing and dealing with the things that are of the highest priority, right? That's destabilizing the shared services queues as well, right? Because but they can say they're agile because they're doing Scrum and Kanban. Okay, man. So I, I'm not answering red herring questions tonight. So no, 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 no. I, I'm going to come. There's a reason I'm right. saying Go Well, ahead. so no, it's all good, right? So yeah, but so the interesting thing is, right? So there is an element of structure, right? What does that look like? There's yeah. an element of governance and in the root of that problem, right? Once you get the structure, right? Once you get the processes, right? What you get is, is, um, is demand pattern management, right? Okay. And, and that's the thing that's complicated. And so, and so you either have one of two choices. You either say, we're going to create a process that is going to be chaotic, but we're going to manage it visually. And we're going to make intentional decisions and intentional trade-offs about how to orchestrate the work to maximize customer value. Okay. And by that, I mean, whoever's screaming the loudest, whoever's threatening to remove their account, whoever has the highest value thing at any given moment, yeah. we are going to create a totally responsive system and it's going to be totally visual. We're going to know everywhere everything's at and we, that is how we're going to work. It sounds super dysfunctional. That is a, well, it's a perfectly valid way to work. Yeah. But don't expect to make any commitments. Okay. Because, because you're not going to be able right. to reliably deliver for that customer. Okay. So okay. here's, here's where I want to wind back to the thing. So I am wondering if there's certain types of organizations where Scrum can work. There's certain ones where Kanban can work. Do you think that there is a class of organization out there that Agile has failed to come up with a, a valid way to meet what they need. Like maybe these digital or whatever service organizations, what we have on the table for them now, they're looking at the menu and there's nothing that they want to eat because it's going to be this, we're just totally responsive. We just answer whoever yells. I mean, that sounds well, awful. Well, well, so so here's here's my take, right? And so, you know, I think last session we talked about the idea of reference architecture versus reference implementation, yeah. patterns versus prescriptions, right? Things mm -hmm. like that. And so what, what I, I think is that some of these new domains, I mean, we've done some, we've been pretty fortunate. We've gotten to do some work like for fast food restaurants. We've gotten to do some work for hotel chains. Mm -hmm. with one potential client right now about some hardware stuff, some really non-software kinds of things. And what we find is that in every single one of these applications, <clears throat> it requires um, custom org design, custom governance, and you know custom you know practices and things that enable that governance right okay. and so and so um so so is there a place where agile doesn't work now if if i answer that question i go i, I think about it from the other side given the rate of change in most organizations right. and in most markets is there a place where we have the luxury of big upfront planning creating a Gantt chart, orchestrating, trying to identify enough of the requirements and enough of how to do the work that we can get good estimates. And then, and then put that on a Gantt chart and deliver it. Um, I think the, the hypothesis has failed. I don't think we can know enough about the requirements. And I think if we try, we're gonna slow down the process and we're gonna get it wrong and things are gonna change and we're gonna deliver the thing on time, but we're not gonna deliver the right thing. Okay. I don't think we can know enough about the requirements I don't think we can know enough about how long it's going to take to do the work. Once we apply actual human beings to that estimate, there's tremendous volatility in how human beings operate day to day. Right. Right. And so we basically have time, cost, and scope that we can't stabilize out. Okay. Right. And so, so I think, I don't think while Scrum or Safe or Less might need to be the answer, I also, I also don't believe there is a universe where 
uh, waterfall is the answer. I think I think there's there's no organization where I would say big upfront planning, large batches, um, and you know trying to trying to predict the future kinds of things mm -hmm. is, is the right strategy. I would I would never advocate for that. But okay. if you look at like our model, like the lower left quadrant, yeah. what we're advocating for are stable teams, right? Um, usually using Scrum, could use Kanban. Um, Kanban-based program management that's orchestrating dependencies and managing the flow of work to organizational priorities, mm -hmm. right? subordinate to a portfolio layer. The portfolio layer might be doing six to nine to 12 month planning. The program layer is probably doing three to six month look ahead. Mm -hmm. The backlogs are being executed at the team level. Mm -hmm. Probably for digital marketing, that all gets compressed, right? And so, and it's probably like narrower time horizons because there's more volatility. Yeah. So, so I, I, for an organization that can't go to like lean startup or hyper expressive agile, what I might say is team-based iterative and incremental delivery governed in a way that it's feeding small batches through the system. So we can get constant, con more continuous delivery and more continuous feedback. And we create optionality for change when we learn new things. Okay. Okay. And so um, when I talk like that, people will come up to me and go, well, that sounds like waterfall. And the reason why they say that is because the agile that they want to do is just leave me alone and let me code. <laughs> and, and there's almost no professional environment where you can say, leave me alone and let me code and I'll just right. get, get done. And, and that, that, that's a non-starter in most organizations. So if you're saying that agile is, um, agile is leave me in the corner and let me just do the best I can as long as I can until you run out of money and then you get what you get. Yeah. Right, that's a non-starter. But if we can allow Agile to be um, uh, breaking things into smaller batches, releasing things into production more frequently, the ability to get um, feedback from customers, the ability to create optionality for change, yeah. things like that, then if that can be Agile, right? If that's Agile too, right? Even if I'm doing more forward planning than I might like, even if I think that forward planning is waste, right? It kind of creates safety and kind of creates a bubble for our stakeholders. Okay. Right? They want to pay that waste, right? To create that kind of safety. Sure. Right? And so it's, so we just have to be just ultimately pragmatic about this stuff. Okay. Right. And so is agile the right thing for everybody? It depends on what you mean by agile. Well, that, yeah. And I was going to, I mean, that's, so it seems like the definition of what it is might be shifting a little bit i mean you've got all the people saying it's you know it's it's gone bad because we're not sticking to the core of it but then well what are what is the core right um depends who you ask responding to change over following a plan mm -hmm. um customer collaboration over contract negotiation people over tools and what what's the one i'm leaving out this oh week? dude you were so close yeah, yeah i know right? i was like wow look at that he's got it all memorized <laughs> i was actually going up the list backwards right so <laughs> Basically, people and interactions over process and tools. Individuals and interaction over yeah. processes and tools. Collaboration over contract negotiation. That's the third one. Um, Responding to change over following a plan is four. Okay. What's number two, Mike? Somebody's got to type it in. Kathy, Greg, Mark. We've got the agile experts on the phone, and we can't remember. What am I losing? Like, um, Working software. Over contract over comprehensive documentation. There you go. Yeah. yeah, I knew it. So there you go. There you go. Well, yeah. So, so the idea, right? So if you look at that, right, and you say, and you say, um, you know, lower left quadrant, leading agile, team-based, iterative and incremental delivery, right? Yeah. Change over following a plan? Yes. Right? Customer collaboration over contract negotiation? Yes. Um, working software over comprehensive documentation? Absolutely. Right. Um, you know, people and in interactions over processes and tools. Absolutely. Right. So why can't I call that agile too? I mean, if you think about it, right, some of the earliest methodologies were things like feature driven development, dynamics yeah. development methodology, Jim Highsmith, I, I think he called it adaptive project management or something like that. I go back to like the first agile book I read by Sanjeev Augustine from Lightspeed. Um, like that was all agile project management. Don't tell people that Sanjeev's head just went. No, I know. I've told Sanjeev that too, right? That's really kind of funny. He was actually the first agile speaker I ever heard speak. And he was the first agile book I ever read. Wow. All right. Yeah. I want to change topics. I want to ask you a question that I think you're yeah. not going to want to answer. Oh gosh. Okay. What are we got? It came from the audience though. Okay, cool. Well, then I'll answer it. Then I want to answer the question. All That's right. Are you ready? 
Yeah, Thoughts on the use of free or open source agile tools, the goods, the bads, and some recommendations for starting out with small teams. Well, so, okay, so I'll, I'll be perfectly candid, <clears throat> my attitude towards tools, right? So I, I don't know any of the open source tools, right? We don't, we don't use them, right? We don't encounter them in the wild. Okay. Um, I would have told you for a long, long time, <laughs> full disclosure, I came out of version one. That's what I was doing before I started um, leading agile. And so I have an affinity for that tool and I have an affinity for the people that work there, right? Um, it's changed with Flavnet a little bit, but there's still all good people over there. And so for the kinds of scale that we do, mm -hmm. um, what I've found is that, you know, version one, the, the CA rally stuff, um, Agile Craft now, those were kind of always my three favorites because they really dealt with scale really mm -hmm. well. Right. Because almost anything that we're going into, we've got multi-tier kinds of things right. um, where the, the entrants that are kind of changing and evolving that we've had some success with is we've been able to build templates to make TFS work. Um, we've, and, and that one's <laughs> no, seriously, right. Yeah. But it's like Derek, Derek did a bunch of that stuff for us back in the day. And, um, and the you know, thing is, is a lot of times people buy the Microsoft suite of stuff, right? And then they, they basically have TFS. So yeah, they're stuck with it. So it's basically kind of free, right? Um, and then, you know, one of the things that, that, that's interesting is, is I'm on record. I'm not like a huge Jira fan. I'm still not a huge Jira fan. But the, the thing with Jira is that the barrier to entry is so low and, and it's, it's ubiquitous within. People love it. And they love it, right? Yeah. But the challenge with Jira, right, and they're getting more mature about being able to do the roll-up views, like Jira portfolio is, right. is growing up and it's, it's becoming kind of a real thing. And we've got a lot of people, we've got a lot of experts in leading agile that know how to do it. And, um, and, you know, I'm a little biased against it, but I've kind of like gotten over it. And to the extent that we can make it work, you know, then, then, then we make it work, right? And a lot of our customers like it. Okay. Uh, so, so like when I look at, when I've looked at things like, and this is, this is old, right? So, so like when I've looked at things like Mingle or I've looked at things like, I'm trying to think of like the one that like Pivotal did, Pivotal Labs. Maybe it was just tracker. Pivotal Tracker, that was it. Um, I've looked at some of the other like smaller things. Target Process was one of them. Yeah. And I don't really know how those tools have evolved over the last five or six years. But what I've always found is that they were great for teams, but it's really the roll up that okay. interesting thing and so unless and I, I just would it would blow me away if there was a credible open source solution that did the roll-up stuff well okay right? yeah, like, so you do not you don't advocate for post-its and sharpies anymore because that won't operate at a program well, well so so i use post-its and sharpies all the time we use post-its and sharpies on the largest of the large clients and, okay. and, I'll, and I'll i'll fully um credit this um back when i was at version one um version one used um, Sharpies and sticky notes on the board all the time. Okay. And so what, what we would talk about though, is we would talk about collaborate on the walls mm -hmm. and then track on the tools. And so, oh, okay. yeah, it's so like a lot of times, like what we'll do is, you know, we'll use physical stickies, um, on a board. Um, you know, we've used a tool called note app for a while, which is like a virtual sticky note board. We use it for a lot of our retrospectives here at leading agile because we're a distributed company. Um, and that those are great tools for brainstorming and gathering data and making decisions and things like that. But they're not always the best tools for distributed teams, uh, you know, working in concert with a bunch of other stuff. Right. Okay. So, so if you've got a small team, right, if you're a startup um, and you're all co-located and you're all working together in an office somewhere on the wall, by all means do it on the wall, right? There's okay. no need for tooling and tooling overhead and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, if you're doing any kind of distributed work or you're doing any kind of multi-team work, then it's almost always a hybrid of collaborate and plan um, yeah. as close to the, to the work surface as you can, but then track and manage work and do all your reporting out of a tool. And okay. yet that means that you probably need an intern or somebody to take the stuff off the wall and put it in the tool. Um, but, you know, you okay. know, People do different kinds of things, right? So I'm not dogmatic about it at all. Um, I just think we have to be pragmatic about what works in different contexts. So I want to I want to share something that Marty Bradley and I were talking about. Well, actually, the podcast we haven't released yet with um, Greg and Jessica and Marty, and we were talking about one of our clients. And when the reporting goes in, or when the tools go in, you're going to generate reports. Mm -hmm. 
And that when you start to bring the reports to to senior management, you've got to kind of teach them what these reports mean, how they're different. Absolutely. Once they get used to that transparency, they really like it. But we were talking about the fact that you've got to keep upping that game. You've got, it's like they get this sort of like addiction and you've got to like get them here and then we give them something a little stronger and then we give them a little stronger. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Like, is there like a ceiling to that? Is there a point where you're trying to get them to this level of visibility? Well, so one of the things that we've gone to market with is a strategy, right? Um, and I, I'm going to steal a line from Fred Smith, the, the CEO of FedEx, um, is that, is that the, you know, one of the things he says about FedEx is he goes, he goes, the data about the package is as important as the package. And what he's, what he's talking about is he's basically saying, and think about this, right? When you receive a FedEx package on your door, right? Mm-hmm. Not only do you get the package as part of the product, but you are also getting email alerts along the way. If it's a day late, you know where it is, you know, the last place that we scanned in, there's a pretty good shot if it's gotten lost that you can track it, right? All that kind right. of stuff. So that's part of the overall service, right? So you're not just paying for the package to randomly show up at your door whenever it shows up. You're paying for all the information associated with that package getting it's to your house. Very Marshall McLuhan. Well, yeah, it's just <laughs> right. That's what they do. It's yeah. Right. So I just didn't get your reference. That's why. I, I oh, know. the medium is the message. Okay. There you go. Okay. Cool. So, um, so, so, so we've taken that pretty seriously at Leading Agile too, right? And so I would suggest that the data about the transformation, right, yeah. how it's progressing in a measurable way. It's like FedEx tracking. Is as important as the transformation itself, That's right? pretty cool. Yeah, okay. because, because you think about it, right, as far as transformation work goes, there's there's the progress of the transformation itself. Yeah. And then there's the progress against the levers that were actually, the business levers that were actually moving as a result of the transformation. And okay. both of those things are relevant and they're incredibly powerful not only from us justifying our existence, but giving the executives ground cover as to you know how they're justifying the money that they're spending on us for being there. Okay. okay. Now extend that into the product space. <clears throat> is the is the are the metrics about product delivery as important as? Apologies, I should have turned. <laughs> you should have turned that off. <laughs> So wait, um, before you, before yeah. you go, I want to interrupt you. So we've get, yeah. we're getting all these questions about tools. So yeah. I think we're going to probably stay away from tools for the rest of this. Cause we only have 13 minutes left, but I will try to schedule something with Jessica so we can do that in the future. Yeah, Maybe me and Jessica or somebody we can get on, we can yeah. get live one of these and, and just talk straight about tools. Cause cool. I got to, Jessica's a Jira lover, right? So I got to keep Jessica on. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Back to your train of thought. Jessica and I have a, have a bit of a friendly thing back and forth with Jira. So it's all good. All the love in the world for Jira. It's just not what I grew up in. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so so then you think about right: is the information about the progress that we're making on the software project yeah as important as the software project itself? And and it might be hard to make the argument that it's as important because it's. I'd say it's more important. Well, I'd say it's pretty darn important, right? I don't yeah. know whether it's more or close or. Well, you're changing the organization. It's not just delivering product; it's teaching it how to be different. Teaching. Oh, okay. It how to well, no. So that gets to the transformation, right? Yeah. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, leading Agile's mindset is that the data about the transformation is as important as the transformation. Okay. The economic drivers, the measurement of progress against transformation. Yeah, yeah. But now we're talking about a transformed organization, right? Leading Agile. Okay. Okay. Themselves, whatever. Um. And then they is is being able to communicate progress against the deliverable, mm-hmm. and I would suggest that it absolutely is important. Yeah, take that a lot of different angles, right? So if you're in a really high functioning agile ecosystem, right, mm-hmm. well formed teams, continuous integration, continuous delivery, DevOps, right, everything that you can think to do, right. Well, the, the progress indicators that we care about might not be, um, you know, how well are we doing actually delivering the software we promised, right? It might be, are we acquiring new customers? Are we driving up revenue? Are we driving up? Yeah. I would suggest that stuff matters. Yeah. Is the impact there. If, if we're not as mature and let's say we're delivering once a quarter or once every six weeks or once a month, right? Then progress against the release becomes a leading indicator. To know like how we're progressing against that feature set because that feature set represents an investment hypothesis about how we might perform, right? So then we have two sets of data, right? We've got the progress towards the release, 
right? We have leading indicators of, is the release gonna be successful? And then we have the actual metrics associated once we deploy the release, okay? Okay. I would suggest that those indicators are pretty important as well, yeah. right? So, so when executives get good, reliable data that they can actually make decisions off of, right? Reliable decisions off of, that is kind of a right? Okay. You know, um, this is a total aside, but we have some pretty good metrics about how leading agile performs financially, right? So we have we have metrics about like who's where and what accounts. We have metrics around what contracts are signed, what revenue projections look like. We manage a tremendous amount of variation on any given day. And every account leader is responsible for making sure that their stuff is up to date in real time. Yeah. Uh, I can't manage the business if I don't know that kind of stuff, right? right. Because I'm constantly making bets around who to hire and do we need to acquire more clients and do we need to wind something down? Do we need to spend something up? Right. And and we're too big and too distributor. I can't run around and talk to everybody and go, okay, what do you think about this account? What do you think about yeah. this? What do you think about this? Like I gotta know, right? I gotta know what bet you're making, right? And it has to be pretty reliable over time. And so I think I think metrics, if they're used in a healthy way and they actually measure things that are real. Yeah. Metrics are great. Okay. You know? But the, the downside is when we use vanity metrics to beat people up. Yeah. Because right? it's not like metrics are bad, but metrics that don't measure what we really care about or that don't reflect reality. That's bad because then we make, then we make fake news. Decisions. It's fake news. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. I got a closing question because okay, getting, we're getting to the top of the hour and this is metrics related. Okay. This is from Michael. Can you recommend good agile metrics for innovation level efforts? Um, so I don't know that I'm the guy to answer that question, right? So I've, okay. had, I've had these conversations. Um, we have, we're, we have a, an emerging um, product practice, right? And, and so when I've had these conversations with, with the product guys that are on our team, right. uh, I think a lot of the things that I naturally gravitate to are are things that are um, maybe vanity metrics to those guys. So okay. can you give an example? Well, so no, candidly, probably not, right? This is okay. fine stuff for me. So so okay. I'm just being really candid, right? Because I'm not going to pretend to to be an expert. Sure. I don't know, right? But you know, the things that you the kinds of things that you're looking for, right, in an innovation space is you know whatever matters to you. Are you acquiring customers? Are you creating disruptive technologies? Are you, you know, the amount of experiments you run, things What's like that. your flow from ideas? Yeah. Well, well, so, but, but that's really interesting, right? Because that's where I tend to go too, right? And this is the reason why I'm a little uncomfortable answering the question. Okay. Because, because when you're dealing with innovation or even disruptive innovation, right. you don't necessarily know what you're tracking towards. Okay. Okay. And so, so like where to me, like, like where my brain goes is, oh, I'm going to do something innovative. So look at me. <laughs> I'm going to create an innovative an innovation project with a defined scope. And, you know, and this is what my innovation is going to be. Yeah. Right? And then, so I, I start to go back to that default and, or, or I'll go to like, okay, well, we're going to innovate. So we're going to, we're going to AB test. We're going to create hypotheses. We're going to do these different things. Right. Yeah. And then my brain goes to metrics and revenue and that kind of thing. And, but, but if you're really measuring innovation, you know, you might start measuring things like, um, and again, I don't know if these are the right things, but the the number of experiments that you've run. Which can also become a vanity metric too, though. Well, well, like anything can become a vanity metric, right? So it's all contextual. So if we really want to go deep into this, like if we find ourselves, I think we owe the, the, the group another question too, by the way. <laughs> so, um, so Michael, yeah. the answer is to your question, yeah. it depends. Um, <laughs> no, but I think there's some things to consider, right? So if this is something that we start getting a lot of questions on, um, like Scott Selhorst on our team, yeah. uh, or like a John Harmer on our team, you know, they have like a really deeply held point of view because they're the ones that are going in with some of our clients that are doing the more innovative things. Yeah. For us, this is really kind of like a base camp five problem to solve. Yeah. And that's really kind of at the end of the chain for We're us. We're busy trying to get people to have that problem. That's, that's the good problem to yeah, have. Yeah, trying to get people to have that problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, Michael, I couldn't give you a cleaner answer to that. That's no, it's, I think that's a fair answer. And, and I can probably do something with Scott and, and those guys and later you're, on. You're 
never going to get a bullshit answer from me that I don't know. Well, I, I want to point something out that just happened. Yeah. So for the folks that are listening, I'm assuming you're working with agile team somewhere, you're coaching stuff or, or something like that. But to me, one of the signs that somebody actually knows what the hell they're talking about is when they can <laughs> legitimately look at the screen and say, I, pfft, I'm not the guy, not the guy. Yeah. And but that, have, that's an important have thing. The guy on our team. And that's a risk, <laughs> right? That's a risk with me. And I'm going to have to probably get out and start doing some more hands-on coaching and stuff because it's like what I've really developed a strong point of view around is the mechanisms of change and how to build an organization to lead these kinds of changes yeah. in information offices and things like that. You know, at this stage of the game, like I can go back to first principles and I can solve a ton of problems by reducing the problem down to its fundamentals and building back up the answer. Yeah. But there's a ton of stuff that, that, if we want to do stuff on DevOps and technology things, we're going to have to get somebody else on the phone, right? If we're going to do stuff around like hardcore product stuff, yeah. then we got people to do that. It's just that that's just not my, that's not my deep expertise. So. Okay. What, what do you see? I have a question for you to, to okay, close cool. out with then. So yeah. you you go around, you meet with all these different executives and stuff like yeah. that. Are there new questions that they're asking? Like, is their mindset shifting? Are they looking at different stuff? Their understanding of agile evolving in some way that, that maybe other folks, people like me don't get exposure I'll, to that. I'll tell you the, 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 the feedback that we're getting quite often is, and, and again, right, there's a, there's a huge risk that, you know, cause the way that we market is right. We cast a, a pretty wide net. We do a lot of stuff like this. We do stuff through social channels and speaking and things. And so the people that call us have been paying attention to our stuff and are somewhat disposed to think like we think. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're kind of filtering the market to find the people that have the problem that we solve, right? <clears throat> so there's some risk that my data set is too narrow to answer their question generally. Okay. But what we find, what we find is that most of our clients, um, they're not trying to go from waterfall to agile. They're, they've usually tried some agile, had some success, but have had failures that they can't explain. Right. Okay. And they're going to market and they're, they're sending people to scrum training or safe training or things like that. And, and it feels to them like there's more to the story. Okay. So, and I think the more to the story is all this change management stuff that we're talking around yeah. is the idea of, okay, I hear where you want to go, but like, how do we safely and pragmatically get there? And, and kind of the refrain we're hearing quite a lot is like, yeah, I could kind of tell that there was, there was, there seemed to be more to it but I didn't know how to articulate it. And what you've done is helped us articulate it. Okay. And I think that's pretty powerful, right? Yeah. Because I think, I think our market is such that people really want to do this and, but they're, but they're not going to just do things blindly for the sake of doing them on the promise that it might work. Right. Especially if it doesn't make intuitive sense right out of the gate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Ready cool. for the, I have the, the fun, weird question okay, now. So we got two minutes left, man. Make it happen. This is it. Okay. So you have 30-ish guitars behind you. You're stranded on an island. You're going to starve to death. You only get to take one. You mean I'm going to starve to death and you make me bring a guitar? Well, what so else are you going to do? You're not going to eat. You're looking for like one <laughs> guitar with like- I want to know which one of those. All right. All right. So the room catches on fire. You only can get one guitar, which is the one you're taking. man i know um, probably most versatile most versatile guitar would probably be like a gibson es335 semi-hollow body where is it show me um it's oh, it's actually right behind me it's the one show I'm everyone in. the guitar mike go get the guitar it's a blonde one right there so um i've been playing it recently there's a lot of really great guitars i mean the one i'm the most emotionally connected to was is a gibson flying v that i have i'm kind of a gibson guy um i've got um an sg and i've got a les paul um, I've got Jackson's I like. I've got a Parker that is that is really nice. I've got a couple of Fender Stratocasters. I've got a couple of handmade guitars. So if Jacob Harper is listening to this, I probably just really deeply offended because I bought like four <laughs> handmade guitars from him. Okay. Um, those would be candidates too, right? But those are more specialty guitars, right? So I tend to be a humbucker guy. I tend to be, you know, kind of a rock and roll blues guy. And I've got a couple of guitars from him that are that are more Telecaster. Um, there you go. That's that's the guitar that you want there. Yeah, man. So it's like I just got a I got a lot of stuff, right? So I got my eye on a few ones. I got a Paul Reed Smith that's coming in a month. I was going to ask if you had a PRS. Yeah, so I want like a really nice tin top um, Paul Reed Smith, but um, I actually ordered a um, a John Mayer has a signature edition that's really interesting. And don't say good. don't say that man's name. You don't like John Mayer? <laughs> I don't like John Mayer. 
you know he made a mean guitar man so you know all right and, and yeah probably a 2019 bucket list will be get a really nice highly figured paul reed smith super nice one but cool. I, have, I have to spend six thousand dollars to get the one i want and so i'm just like i'm delaying that purchase for the one so yeah cool all right well dude this is on listen to the very end (laughs) well thank you for doing this and thanks for everybody who joined in we'll do another one really soon and we'll do one about tooling soon we'll get jessica on here too so mike thanks a lot jessica mandel thank you very much um folks have a good night see you later bye bye